Section Zero of Insurgent Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Insurgent Mexico by John Reed. Dedication and Preface. To Professor Charles Townsend Copeland of Harvard University. Dear Copy, I remember you thought it strange that my first trip abroad didn't make me want to write about what I saw there, but since then I have visited a country which stimulated me to express it in words, and as I wrote these impressions of Mexico, I couldn't help but think that I never would have seen what I did see had it not been for your teaching me. I can only add my word to what so many who are writing already have told you that to listen to you is to learn how to see the hidden beauty of the visible world, that to be your friend is to try to be intellectually honest. So I dedicate this book to you with the understanding that you shall take as your own the parts that please you, and forgive me the rest. As ever, Jack. New York, July 3, 1914. On the Border Mercado's Federal Army after its dramatic and terrible retreat four hundred miles across the desert when Chihuahua was abandoned, lay three months at Ojinaga on the Rio Grande. At Presidio on the American side of the river, one could climb to the flat mud roof of the post office and look across the mile or so of low scrub growing in the sand to the shallow yellow stream, and beyond to the low mesa where the town was, sticking sharply up out of the scorched desert, ringed round with bare, savage mountains. One could see the square, grey adobe houses of Ojinaga, with here and there the oriental cupola of an old Spanish church. It was a desolate land, without trees. You expected minarets. By day, federal soldiers in shabby white uniforms swarmed about the place desultorily digging trenches, for Villa and his victorious constitutionalists were rumoured to be on the way you got sudden glints where the sun flashed on field guns, strange thick clouds of smoke rose straight in the still air. Toward evening, when the sun went down with the flare of a blast furnace, patrols of cavalry rode sharply across the skyline to the night outposts, and after dark mysterious fires burned in the town. There were thirty-five hundred men in Ojinaga. This was all that remained of Mercado's army of ten thousand, and the five thousand which Pascual Orozco had marched north from Mexico City to reinforce him. Of this thirty-five hundred, forty-five were majors, twenty-one colonels, and eleven generals. I wanted to interview General Mercado, but one of the newspapers had printed something displeasing to General Salazar, and he had forbidden the reporters the town. I sent a polite request to General Mercado. The note was intercepted by General Orozco, who sent back the following reply. Esteemed and honored sir, if you set foot inside of Ojinaga, I will stand you sideways against a wall, and with my own hand take great pleasure in shooting furrows in your back. But after all I waded the river one day and went up into the town. Luckily I did not meet General Orozco. No one seemed to object to my entrance." All the sentries I saw were taking a siesta on the shady side of adobe walls. But almost immediately I encountered a courteous officer named Hernandez, to whom I explained that I wished to see General Mercado. 
without inquiring as to my identity, he scowled, folded his arms, and burst out, I am General Orozco's chief of staff, and I will not take you to see General Mercado. I said nothing. In a few minutes he explained. General Orozco hates General Mercado. He does not deign to go to General Mercado's quartel, and General Mercado does not dare to come to General Orozco's quartel. He is a coward. He ran away from Tierra Blanca, and then he ran away from Chihuahua. What other generals don't you like? I asked. He caught himself and slanted an angry look at me, and then grinned. Quien sabe? I saw General Mercado, a fat, pathetic, worried, undecided little man, who blubbered and blustered a long tale about how the United States Army had come across the river and helped Villa to win the Battle of Tierra Blanca. The white, dusty streets of the town, piled high with filth and fodder, the ancient windowless church with its three enormous Spanish bells hanging on a rack outside and a cloud of blue incense crawling out of the black doorway where the women camp followers of the army prayed for victory day and night, lay in hot breathless sun. Five times had Ohinaga been lost and taken. Hardly a house that had a roof, and all the windows gaped with cannon shot. In these bare, gutted rooms lived the soldiers, their women, their horses, their chickens and pigs, raided from the surrounding country. Guns were stacked in the corners, saddles piled in the dust. The soldiers were in rags. Scarcely one possessed a complete uniform. They squatted around little fires in their doorways, boiling corn husks and dried meat. They were almost starving. Along the main street passed an unbroken procession of sick, exhausted, starving people, driven from the interior by fear of the approaching rebels, a journey of eight days over the most terrible desert in the world. They were stopped by a hundred soldiers along the street, and robbed of every possession that took the Federal's fancy. Then they passed on to the river, and on the American side they had to run the gauntlet of the United States Customs and Immigration Officials and the Army Border Patrol, who searched them for arms. Hundreds of refugees poured across the river, some on horseback, driving cattle before them, some in wagons, and others on foot. The inspectors were not very gentle. "'Come down off that wagon,' one would shout to a Mexican woman with a bundle in her arm. "'But, senor, for what reason?' she would begin. "'Come down there, or I'll pull you down,' he would yell." They made an unnecessarily careful and brutal search of the men, and of the women, too. As I stood there, a woman waded across the ford, her skirts lifted unconcernedly to her thighs. She wore a voluminous shawl, which was humped up in front as if she were carrying something in it. "'Hi there!' shouted a customs man. "'What have you got under your shawl?' She slowly opened the front of her dress, and answered placidly, I don't know, senor, it may be a girl, or it may be a boy. These were metropolitan days for Presidio, a straggling and indescribably desolate village of about fifteen adobe houses, scattered without much plan in the deep sand and cottonwood scrub along the river bottom. Old Kleinman, the German storekeeper, made a fortune a day outfitting refugees and supplying the Federal Army across the river with provisions. He had three beautiful adolescent daughters, whom he kept locked up in the attic of the store, B-2. 
because a flock of amorous Mexicans and ardent cowpunchers prowled around like dogs, drawn from many miles away by the fame of these damsels. Half the time he spent working furiously in the store stripped to the waist, and the remainder rushing around with a large gun strapped to his waist, warning off the suitors. At all times of the day and night, throngs of unarmed federal soldiers from across the river swarmed in the store and the pool hall. Among them circulated dark, ominous persons with an important air, secret agents of the rebels and the federals. Around in the brush camped hundreds of destitute refugees, and you could not walk around a corner at night without stumbling over a plot or a counterplot. There were Texas Rangers and United States Troopers, and agents of American corporations trying to get secret instructions to their employees in the interior. One Mackenzie stamped about the post office in a high dudgeon. It appeared that he had important letters for the American smelting and refining company mines in Santa Eulalia. Old Mercado insists on opening and reading all letters that pass through his lines, he shouted indignantly. But, I said, he will let them pass, won't he? Certainly, he answered, but do you think the American Smelting and Refining Company will submit to having its letters opened and read by a damned greaser? It's an outrage when an American corporation can't send a private letter to its employees. If this don't bring intervention, he finished darkly, I don't know what will. There were all sorts of drummers for arms and ammunition companies, smugglers and contrabandistas, also a small bantam man, the salesman for a portrait company, which made crayon enlargements from photographs at five dollars apiece. He was scurrying around among the Mexicans, getting thousands of orders for pictures which were to be paid for upon delivery, and which, of course, could never be delivered. It was his first experience among Mexicans, and he was highly gratified by the hundreds of orders he had received. You see, a Mexican would just as soon order a portrait, or a piano, or an automobile as not, so long as he does not have to pay for it. It gives him a sense of wealth. The little agent for crayon enlargements made one comment on the Mexican Revolution. He said that General Huerta must be a fine man, because he understood he was distantly connected, on his mother's side, with the distinguished Carey family of Virginia. The American bank of the river was patrolled twice a day by details of cavalry, conscientiously paralleled on the Mexican side by companies of horsemen. Both parties watched each other narrowly across the border. Every once in a while a Mexican, unable to restrain his nervousness, took a pot-shot at the Americans, and a small battle ensued as both parties scattered into the brush. A little way above Presidio were stationed two troops of the Negro Ninth Cavalry. One colored trooper, watering his horse on the bank of the river, was accosted by an English-speaking Mexican squatting on the opposite shore. "'Hey, coon!' he shouted derisively. "'When are you damned gringos going to cross that line?' "'Child,' responded the negro, "'we ain't a-goin' to cross that line at all. We're just goin' to pick up that line and carry it right down to the big ditch.' Sometimes a rich refugee, with a good deal of gold sewed in his saddle blankets, would get across the river without the Federals discovering it. There were six big, high-power automobiles in Presidio waiting for just such a victim. They would soak him one hundred dollars gold to make a trip to the railroad, 
and on the way, somewhere in the desolate wastes south of Marfa, he was almost sure to be held up by masked men, and everything taken away from him. Upon these occasions the high sheriff of Presidio County would bluster into town on a small pinto horse, a figure true to the best tradition of the girl of the Golden West. He had read all Owen Wister's novels, and knew what a western sheriff ought to look like. Two revolvers on the hip, one slung under his arm, a large knife in his left boot, and an enormous shotgun over his saddle. His conversation was larded with the most fearful oaths, and he never caught any criminal. He spent all of his time enforcing the Presidio County law against carrying firearms and playing poker, and at night, after the day's work was done, you could always find him sitting in at a quiet game in the back of Kleinman's store. War and rumors of war kept Presidio at a fever heat. We all knew that sooner or later the Constitutionalist army would come overland from Chihuahua and attack Ohinaga. In fact, the major in command of the Border Patrol had already been approached by the Federal generals in a body to make arrangements for the retreat of the Federal army from Ohinaga under such circumstances. They said that when the rebels attacked, they would want to resist for a respectable length of time, say two hours, and that then they would like permission to come across the river. We knew that some twenty-five miles southward, at La Mula Pass, five hundred rebel volunteers guarded the only road from Ohinaga through the mountains. One day a courier sneaked through the Federal lines and across the river with important news. He said that the military band of the Federal Army had been marching around the country practicing their music, and had been captured by the Constitutionalists, who stood them up in the marketplace with rifles pointed at their heads, and made them play twelve hours at a stretch. Thus, continued the message, the hardships of life in the desert have been somewhat alleviated. We could never discover just how it was that the band happened to be practicing all alone twenty-two miles from Ohinaga in the desert. For a month longer the Federals remained at Ohinaga, and Presidio throve. Then Villa, at the head of his army, appeared over a rise in the desert. The Federals resisted a respectable length of time, just two hours, or to be exact, until Villa himself at the head of a battery galloped right up to the muzzles of the guns, and then poured across the river in wild rout, were herded in a vast corral by the American soldiers, and afterward imprisoned in a barbed wire stockade at Fort Bliss, Texas. But by that time I was already far down in Mexico, riding across the desert with a hundred ragged constitutionalist troopers on my way to the front. End of section zero.